This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast is brought to you by FreshBooks, cloud accounting software that will save you time and money. For a limited time, FreshBooks is offering listeners 50% off your first three months when you sign up for a paid plan. Go to freshbooks.com slash coolmules and enter coolmules in the how did you hear about us section. That's freshbooks.com slash coolmules for 50% off your first three months. Okay, so what is quote unquote old vice? I mean, it was the days when... Uh, you know, Gavin McGinnis was still there when they would do horrible things to their interns and everything was, you know, a ironic joke and that nothing meant anything. And nihilism was the official editorial policy of the magazine. That's Justin Ling, a reporter who worked at Vice Canada with Slava Pastikoff and who still freelances for them. Full disclosure, he was also a host for Canada Land, the company that makes this podcast. He's agreed to talk with us about his time at Vice because Vice itself and its staff won't talk about the story. And he feels like someone has to defend them from what he sees as our misguided journalism. I think this podcast is unbelievably stupid. Apologies to the, the people sitting in front of me, but I think this podcast is a bad idea. According to Justin, Vice gets a bad rap because of its early reputation, a reputation it has since totally outgrown. I know there's all of the stories of yesteryear advice, and I heard a lot of them. That was late 90s, early 2000s. The magazine and the outlet went through a thousand different reinventions. When I joined, it was a company that was no longer built for you know hipster skateboarders, but was suddenly pivoting towards long-form documentaries, thoughtful reporting, cultural investigations, You know, looking at the effects of the drug war, talking about uh, issues that don't get platformed elsewhere. By the time Justin left Vice, he says it was pretty much like any other media company. The culture was, I have to tell you, incredibly boring. What particularly galls him is Slava's explanation that the reason why he got into cocaine smuggling was because he intended to write about his crimes for Vice. Bullshit. Bullshit. Just straight up and down bullshit. This is him trying to pass off his own personal decision to commit a crime, not only just commit a crime, but convince others to commit crimes for him and to make money. So he's blaming Vice. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to remove his own personal culpability in this and push it off to his employer. So did Slava think that he was doing this for the sake of you know the content minds? No, I don't think so. I, I, I think this is revisionism. He's trying to explain it away now that he's been caught. I'm here to tell you that the person responsible for all of this is... I think it was Slava. There's no arguing with that. Slava's culpability is undisputed. He did plead guilty after all. 
But Vice's role in this story goes beyond the direct connections we've explored so far. It's true that the person responsible for Slava's crimes is Slava. But it's also true that all of this happened within a culture that Vice and its founders have claimed credit for creating. And that without Vice, it's hard to imagine any of it happening the way that it did or to the people it happened to. And when a media company is as successful as Vice has been at spreading its culture, it's hard to imagine how that company could ever outgrow that culture, even when it wanted to. In the pages of early Vice, you'll find ordinary people turning their lives into porn, figuratively and literally. You'll find the roots of influencer culture, where everyone is selling their own personal brand. You'll find an editorial voice that became the language of the internet itself. So today, we're going to go way back and explore how a tiny, funny, mean, self-described welfare scam run out of a dirty loft apartment in Montreal in the mid-90s went on to change the world. This series is almost over. Our next episode will be our last. That's when we'll find out what happened to Slava and the rest of the drug smugglers and where they all are today. But before we end our story, we need to go back to the very beginning. I'm Kasia Mihailovich, and this is Cool Mules. Yeah, I mean, I really can't comment about Vice post-2008. I haven't looked at it. I, don't, I haven't seen the show. I've never been to the site. That's Gavin McInnes, who co-founded Vice magazine with Shane Smith and Saroosh Alvey in Montreal in 1994. I would assume, because it was taken over by the head of marketing, that it's focused on marketing and it's low on substance. He gave an interview to Canada Land in New York City back in 2014. I think that Vice trying to... Their Stalinist revisionism is sort of blown up in their face because it's like saying Vince Neil wasn't in Motley Crue. In 2008, Gavin McInnes and Vice parted ways. It was a bitter breakup. He was quickly expunged from the Vice brand. His credit as co-founder was erased from their masthead. When the filmmaker and Vice creative director Spike Jones interviewed Shane Smith about Vice's start for an in-house documentary, they blurred Gavin's face out of an old photo. Their attempts to erase Gavin from history seem to have compelled him to exaggerate his legacy. Look, the only reason I say I invented hipsters is so no one else takes it. It's a ludicrous claim, but not an empty one. The truth is, Gavin McInnes did have a lot to do with establishing the modern hipster look, attitude, and voice. So yeah, I mean, Gavin would have the balls to say that he invented it. That's Jessica Lowe. She was a 19-year-old university student when she dated Gavin just as Vice Magazine was starting. When I first met Gavin, his uniform, basically, was a pair of ill-fitting but skinny cords, big boots, and a plaid shirt, or a skinny, ripped, stinky T-shirt, and facial hair, and tattoos. And now, when I walk around... London or New York or Toronto or Ottawa or, frankly, Kingston, Ontario, a solid half of the young people walking around look like that. 
Gavin was the editor of Vice, and he also wrote most of it, did the layout and illustrations. He started a wildly influential feature called Do's and Don'ts, which was just pictures of people with captions full of cruel jokes about how they were dressed and whether he'd have sex with them. I think one thing about do's and don'ts was it kept repeating the rules every single day, twice a day. The do's that he would pick back then were like super high-waisted skirts and knee socks and old sneakers. So his aesthetic was disseminated far and wide because of that column, which was very influential. Gavin was the chief creative force behind Vice. He made Vice what it was when Vice was infantile, influential, and totally full of shit. I wrote about 80% of it. And we, you know, we, we tried to get, you, you need more blacks writing, you need more women writing. And I would try to find them. So in order to meet those demands, I eventually just had to become these blacks and women. And I would talk about the black experience and I would talk feminist anthems and new takes on my reproductive system. The other founders, Shane Smith and Sarush Alvey, may have wiped Gavin's name from the official company history, but they haven't succeeded in wiping away his impact. You can still hear Gavin's voice in Vice's headlines and beyond. I approached writing from a non-writing standpoint, and the first review I did in Vice was in the first issue, and I just said it was uh, Furnace Face. And I said the first songs come out like... And then the, the, the second one is more like... And spelled that out. The fact is, Gavin's vernacular style of writing and the snarky, mean captions he wrote for Do's and Don'ts in the late 90s read a lot like the cruel and funny comments millions of young people now post to the internet every day. On Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, and text messages, people write online like how they talk. And for a lot of people my age and a little bit older, the first time we read writing like that was in Vice. I would swing the pendulum the other way, too, and put write all caps and like write things like, okay... The writing, one thing I could say about the writing back then and maybe the magazine's influence was that uh, we taught people to just write like themselves. And yes, you can be an airhead and say, not, not use words you don't understand, you know? Gavin encouraged young people to write like themselves in Vice. But he also compelled them to write for free or very close to it. And he had no qualms about rewriting their articles in his own voice whenever he wanted to, with or without their permission. And my attitude with that was, if your writing is so shitty that it needs me to add two paragraphs, I can't wait for you to quit. Whether Gavin was pretending to be people who were not real, or pretending that real people wrote things that they didn't, the common feature was deceit. And Vice was built on deceit. That's not my opinion, by the way. It's a fact. Vice was born when Sarush, Gavin, and Shane were, as they put it, scamming a welfare jobs program at a multicultural community newspaper called Voice of Montreal. According to Shane, he, Gavin, and Sarouche took the magazine from its Haitian owners. So you stole the magazine from a nonprofit organization that's trying to help Haitians? Correct. Dude, that's kind of not that nice. Yeah. Even the name Vice started as a lie to help boost the rebranded magazine's profile. Here's Sarouche on NPR. We came up with this thing where... We said the Village Voice has a trademark on the word voice, and they're suing us and forcing us to change our name. Because you guys were the voice of Montreal. Yes. We told the world that we were being sued by the Village Voice, and that's why we had to change the name to Vice. So you basically made this thing up about the Village Voice to, to generate publicity? Yeah. And it was a complete lie? It was a total lie. 
There were other lies. Here again is Gavin's old girlfriend, Jessica, who also dated Shane during Vice's early years in Montreal. Deceit has been a big part of their story from the very beginning. You know, one of the things that Shane started doing right as they became Vice, so he was, you know, trying to sell ads. And what he would say, they would, he would say, we're distributed across North America. And he would mail one copy of Vice magazine to a skateboarding store in Miami and a clothing store in San Francisco and, you know, Austin, and claim technically that they were available across North America. There were no concerns about lying to get the money. Lying worked for Vice. Lies became true. When the three founders lied to the press about a rich Montreal investor offering them bags of money, it led to that investor actually taking notice of them and putting hundreds of thousands of dollars into Vice. Here's Shane and the other two founders in 1999, boasting about how foolish that big investor was to fund them. Really? You want to do that? Ding, 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 ding. You want to give me money? Ding, 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 You know, like, we're living like kings. We own Montreal. So it's not really an insult to call Vice liars. They're proud of it. In the beginning, we were all about making up shocking stories, we made them up. So that was the beginning, was sort of like National Enquirer-type shocking stuff combined with, like, hip-hop and punk rock. Similarly, you can't really call out Vice for glorifying drugs. I mean, it is called Vice. Again, here's Shane. And we were sort of fascinated with cocaine and supermodels and streetwear and just shit. We were like, we're so rich, we're so rich, it's crazy. They actually put cocaine on the cover, like the cover of a magazine. What's on the cover of the magazine this month? Cocaine. That's Jesse Brown, my boss and co-producer of this show. He's got some disclosures to make. I would have been 19 or 20 years old at the time. I uh, contributed uh, an article to an issue of Vice that I believe was the first glossy issue of Vice ever after they upgraded from newsprint. I had pitched a second piece that, uh, that Gavin had greenlit, but... I happen to have some conversation with him where he casually says to me, oh, we don't like Jews here at Vice. And, you know, I was pretty sure he was baiting me or or trolling, being ironic. But like with Gavin, you can never really be sure. After that, I didn't really feel comfortable sending them more articles. Jesse wasn't a part of Vice's early years beyond what he just said. But he knew a lot of people who were. And living in Montreal at the time, he had a front row seat as their popularity exploded. Everybody had very strong opinions about Vice, but it was hard to just simply hate them because what they were doing was legitimately so exciting. It's probably relevant to mention that it was basically free porn at a time right before porn was really easy to get and ubiquitous on the internet. So, you know, rather than hiding it under the mattress, you would put it out on your coffee table. And if you think about that in context with where the magazine industry was at at the time, like especially with young readers, it was just dying. You couldn't get young people to subscribe to like Spin Magazine. Nobody was buying magazines. Young people weren't going to newsstands anymore. And then here's this magazine that every single copy would get picked up. You know how magazines used to have these annoying postcards, uh, these subscription forms in them? Vice had the opposite. They used to put an ad in every issue that said, don't subscribe to Vice. Like, we, it's a pain in the ass for us to get your subscription. Read us, don't read us, fuck you, we don't even care. So it always had this kind of air of abuse to it. It was sort of abusive to its own readers. And of course, it's 
well documented that they were horrible to their own employees. There was always this element of mockery that you would be so dumb as to work for them for nothing. I mean, Sh- Shane said it. He, he famously boasted that Vice was a sweatshop for Trustafarians. I had a friend in university who I think was one of their very first interns, and they hazed him terribly. Like, they thought it was just hilarious that this privileged university kid would just work for them for free. I remember him telling me the story, but like Gavin McInnes would take out his penis and testicles and literally just dangle his junk on this kid's desk while he would give him orders. So we're talking like primate level dominance stuff. And there were a lot of contributors and cartoonists and and, and various writers who left Vice feeling that they had been very badly taken advantage of. I had my own taste of this, uh, an experience myself. Gavin barely knew me. And I remember he offered me the job uh, to be Vice's comics editor. But I asked him, like, okay, what does it pay? And he said, nothing. I turned him down. And what's embarrassing for me to admit now is that I actually regretted that decision for years. I was truly sorry that I had missed my big chance to be part of Vice, to be exploited by Vice. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing what made sense to me at the time. It's, the power of their brand was really amazing. Vice's brand was bulletproof because negative things that would tarnish the image of any other company actually added to Vice's appeal. If you called them offensive, greedy, drunk, dishonest, well, they called themselves those things. And the more Vice deceived and insulted people, the more people loved Vice. Here's Shane on Charlie Rose. And every time traditional media has criticized us, we get a million more followers. We get 10 more million video views. They like the fact that that you are so different. This didn't just work on Vice's young employees and readers in Montreal. It worked on advertisers and business partners, too. And it worked all over the world. That's next. 
And for a limited time, FreshBooks is offering listeners 50% off your first three months when you sign up for a paid plan. Go to freshbooks.com slash coolmules and enter coolmules in the how did you hear about us section. That's freshbooks.com slash coolmules for 50% off your first three months. Vice moved to New York and throughout the 2000s, it grew and grew. They launched in the UK and then expanded to other countries. By the time they returned to Canada, this country was just another satellite office in their global empire. But one thing Vice has always excelled at is plugging into a pre-existing scene. And a vibrant scene was emerging in Toronto. 2005 was when it started. The Toronto indie music scene was really like gaining an identity. And there was something about just like Vice's presence around that. Like, I don't think that they created it, but they piggybacked off it. That's Catherine Burrell, a screenwriter living in L.A. who spent her 20s in Toronto in the 2000s as a journalist. So, yeah, in 2003, I became friends with um, someone who worked at fashion television, who was like way better dressed, way cooler than me, um, really plugged in. And she introduced me to the writing of Leslie Arfin, um, who was one of the like foundational kind of most famous like Vice magazine writers. And and I just I loved Leslie's writing. I loved how confessional it was, which just felt like a little bit of an extension of that kind of like um, that McSweeney's self-referential, really snarky, really smart commentary op-ed journalism that I think was probably like foundational to sort of the hot take journalism we're mired in now. I loved how, you know, baldly she was talking about her drug problems, her anger problems, the experience of being a young woman in New York. And I very much wanted to be that young woman in New York and had had so many brushes with almost going there and, 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 and never going and was, you know, stuck in New York's little brother, Toronto. But around this same time, Toronto was coming into its own. Torontopia was a term just about this sort of like dreamy collective kind of like socialist Canadian indie music thing that was happening specifically in Toronto, but also in, in Montreal as well with bands like Broken Social Scene, Stars, Arcade Fire. And Vice was there. Vice was there with the co-branded Red Bull sponsorship. Vice was there making sure that the party was happening and the party was great. And there were lots of good looking, interestingly dressed people there. Catherine sees this moment in time as Vice's midlife crisis. I remember talking to this guy, and he was a Vice guy from New York who had come up to Toronto because he was following the Strokes around. And we all went to go see the Strokes together. And we were having beers after the show. And he... He was talking about um, how he had just turned 30 and how his father, who was a blue collar guy from New Jersey, was asking him, one day you're not going to be cool anymore. And what's your job going to be when you're not cool? And he was honestly stumped about what he was going to do. And I think that that was something that must have occurred to all of the vice guys, like the vice guys who realized that the party couldn't go on forever, realized that they had built something interesting, lucrative, that had cultural capital. And then you turn 40 and you're like, okay, well, I I don't want to be like the old tired guy at the party anymore. I don't love going to shows anymore because standing on my feet is exhausting. Shane Smith was Vice's figurehead now that Gavin was gone. And he was definitely starting to look like that old guy at the party. Rather than committing himself to endlessly cool hunting for what each next generation of kids would be up to, 
Shane cleverly announced that Vice was ready to grow up alongside its audience. Overnight, we changed it. We changed it to to doing video, to to being more international, to doing more new stuff, to yeah. doing more serious stuff. And you know, people grow at different at different rates. The serious stuff that he set his sights on for Vice, that was news journalism. The time that I remember Vice going from, you know, being this magazine that I, you know, I would pick up and read in passing for its like snarky op-ed stuff was when Shane Smith was one of the journalists who was tapped to go to North Korea on this like absolute propaganda tour. It's so surreal. There's nothing normal that happens ever in this whole country. In the late 2000s, that kind of like immersive first person casual journalism, bringing journalism to a younger generation as media was was falling apart. I like I don't want to diminish Vice's role in that. Vice started working with legacy media like CNN. And the more Vice insulted big media barons and huge conglomerates, the more money those companies threw at Vice. Well, it's interesting that did you once said to Rupert Murdoch, as I remember this mm-hmm. quote, I am the future and you represent the past and we should be in business together or something. No, I didn't say we should be in business <laughs> together. I said, I, I understand I have what you want because I have youth, I have social and I have online. Yeah. You have none of those. Rupert Murdoch's News Corp bought a 5% stake for a reported $70 million. After that, A&E Networks invested $250 million, And then Disney invested... $400 million. By 2015, Vice had ascended to the top of the media food chain. Just as magazine advertisers in the late 90s had been dying for a vehicle that would deliver them young readers, now major TV networks were desperate to believe that there was a way to bring young people back to cable TV. Vice promised that they and they alone could make that happen. In return, Vice got its own daily HBO series and its own 24-hour cable channel. There were rumors of a coming IPO. Vice's stock would be going public. And if it happened, it would make Shane Smith a billionaire. He even got insulted when it was suggested that his company was worth a mere $4 billion. Okay, more than, well, how much more? more than $4 billion. Okay, $4.4 billion. There you go. All right, okay. So that's $400 million. I'm okay. not good at so math. You just, you just rounded it down. Yes, we rounded it down. Why? Because you guys are mean. No, That's okay. why. Okay. If you were nice, you'd say five. All of this was built on the notion that Vice was now serious. And that notion was built on its newfound commitment to journalism. Shortly before that transformation, here's what Shane said. If you're looking at Vice for being news and the truth, then you're in trouble. Because we didn't come up as like, I'm Jesus on my cross. We came up as, yeah, it's totally cool. Fucking shoes. Vice guy to fucking eating pussy. Vice guy just fucking you in the ass. <laughs> Two years later in a CBC profile, Sarush was shopping a very different narrative. We're investing heavily in the news space. Vice promised that they could revolutionize journalism and make it relevant to an entirely new demographic through a style or maybe a philosophy that they called immersionism. They described it as jackass meets 60 minutes. Instead of putting a well-groomed, authoritative correspondent in front of the action with a microphone, 
Vice sent dozens of scruffy hipsters to conflict zones and crime scenes where they were encouraged to get their hands dirty, drink or smoke whatever the locals were using, and become a part of the action. I actually went to North Korea twice. The first time we snuck in, they wouldn't let me shoot anything. While we were there, we got drunk doing karaoke with some generals, and they let us come in the second time when we shot. I'm just watching a bunch of people roasting their dogs. Oh, my God! Today, I'm going to test that and try and break as many ancient British laws as possible in one day in front of policemen and hope that I don't get arrested. Hi, it's Thomas. I'm in a clinic in Indonesia, um, being cured of my acne by smoking and um, having something sucked out of my ear. This is also good for cancer. Vice did hire tons of legitimate journalists who did increasingly solid, daring journalism, the best of which was charged with an air of danger, with reporters getting closer to bad people and bad behavior than viewers were used to. Here's L. Reeve interviewing a white supremacist in Charlottesville. Whatever, whatever, whatever problems I might have uh, with uh, my fellow white people, uh, they generally are not inclined to such behavior. And, you know, you got to kind of take that into consideration when you're when you're thinking about how to organize your society. In Oklahoma City. OK, so exactly. You have to go back to Oklahoma City to talk about a white act of terrorism. Elliot Roger right? Dylan Roof. OK. Vice has amassed awards for its journalism, including Emmys and a Peabody. So many hardworking journalists have done good work there. And some still do. And full disclosure, as I mentioned before, I once applied for a job there myself. But Vice has fucked up journalistically, too. Vice Canada's small team wanted a piece of what may have been the biggest story to ever come out of Toronto, the Mayor Rob Ford crack scandal. News that a video existed of Toronto's train wreck mayor smoking crack had been broken by Gawker, confirmed by the Toronto Star, and gone global. But nobody beyond a few reporters had actually seen the video. Amid all of this, Vice Canada's editor Patrick McGuire dropped a bombshell revelation. Canada Land's news editor Jonathan Goldsby was covering the Rob Ford scandal at the time. He remembers Vice's blender well. So the story was that Rob Ford's office had hired a hacker to find and destroy the crack tape. Now, in the context of everything that was going on at the time, it was just another thing on the pile that took it to another level of brain-melting, giddy absurdity. But two and a half years later, uh, the crack video finally was publicly released. This was after Rob Ford had passed away. This is in the summer of 2016. And so the person who basically used Strong Vice along openly tweeted about what he had done. So I got in touch with him. I think we had messaged before. And he laid out for me uh, in quite a lot of detail exactly what had happened. Like a lot of people on the political right were frustrated with, uh, you know, use of unnamed sources in news articles and wanted to prove that the media would print any bullshit about Rob Ford. And that's when he went, he said he took the trouble to create photos and screenshots of like of emails, basically. Of, of, but as he said, like he just created up a bunch of Yahoo accounts and had them email each other. Like it was um, very easy stuff to fake. And then I did uh, find a way to independently confirm that, yes, he was given a cash payment of $5,000 by Vice or via money from Vice through an intermediary. Uh, you know, in journalism, generally, it's a really bad idea to pay for information specifically because it creates a market for fake information, uh, which is 
exactly what happened here, where the offer of, or at least the possibility of cash, uh, created an incentive to fabricate evidence, essentially. The hacker story fell apart, but Vice never retracted it or apologized. And by the time the fake hacker admitted that this was all a lie, Patrick McGuire had already been promoted to head of content, a top job managing huge budgets and dozens of employees. One of them was Slava. Patrick and Slava were both part of the original 12, a tiny team of old vice hires who found themselves in positions of seniority when the Toronto office quickly ballooned to 150 employees. Like Slava, Patrick had no training as a journalist, and neither had ever practiced journalism at any other company. Even though Vice had several experienced political reporters working in-house by then, Patrick McGuire was the one to interview Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Mr. Trudeau, thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure. As Slava saw firsthand, it didn't matter at Vice what degree you held or what work experience you had in the industry. What mattered was whether you could make it work, roll with the changes, and be whatever the brand required. The more I learned about the roots of Vice, the more I found myself understanding how a guy like Slava could get the idea that taking the initiative to put himself into an extreme situation might pay off. I mean, I was writing for Vice about things that I had done in previous jobs where I was like uh, running someone's dating profile, or I wrote about how um, there was a weird way to smoke weed up in Northern Ontario. All of these, it was highly encouraged to mine your personal life for content. The line between professional and personal kind of hard for me to draw. It's something that I I started calling the the cred economy, which you know is is the same thing as just like the coolness factor. Is like there's all these people who are trading in the cred economy, hoping that they will be able to eventually participate in the real economy through through participating in the cred economy and like paying their dues there. As journalists mined their personal experiences for content, being cool became a professional goal. But because it's so informal, because there's no roadmap for it before, because because it doesn't really exist, it's not like you can look at the the credit that you have accrued in your cred economy bank account and go like, okay, I'd like to cash out now and get paid with full you know, health and dental. Uh, that's not how it works. As Catherine pointed out to me, the cred economy leaves young people so vulnerable, just like the five smugglers who went to prison in Australia. When I think about, you know, these, these kids who were involved in the smuggling ring, I, I, I think of uh, Terry Richardson and the models who he assaulted. And it's, it's, it's just different versions of that, right? Like, it's just different versions of, of exploiting vulnerable young people promising them this lifestyle, promising them access and power, all of these things that they don't have, that they want to feel important, to feel powerful, to feel meaningful, to, to feel like they have agency. But having to run through this, you know, criminal gauntlet or gauntlet of, of bodily assault before you can get there. But because those lines are so blurred and because there are no protocols or it feels like there's no protocols within the world of vice, Everything feels reasonable and everything feels like it's on the table. A lot of things can feel reasonable in a status economy with no rules and no limits. Maybe even taking strange bags to a foreign country and snapping selfies along the way before a planned visit to Vice's Australia office 
or a vague promise to help with your music or modeling career. But Vice didn't create the gig economy or the culture of hustling and side hustling just to stay above water. And they didn't invent hipsters, whatever Gavin McInnes claims. They just rode the wave. There's one last thing I have to tell you about Gavin. As many people listening to this will know, he found a way to channel his spite not long after his 2014 interview with Canada Land. He had already been doing appearances on Fox News. He would soon be ousted from his own advertising agency for his hateful, transphobic rants. Even during the interview with Canada Land, he went on wild, racist asides out of nowhere. For example... Inbreeding is now a huge problem with Muslims. No one wants to go near that. Two years after this in 2016, Gavin would exert his influence on the culture in a whole new way, as the founding father of a violent faction of the extreme right. He created the Proud Boys, a neo-fascist men's group of self-proclaimed Western chauvinists that spread across North America. The Proud Boys assume an ironic, joking tone when presenting themselves to the press. But the violence Gavin openly encouraged and that the Proud Boys have committed is very real. Their current chairman participated in the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, where anti-right protester Heather Heyer was killed in a hate crime. After it was reported that the FBI classified the Proud Boys as an extremist group with ties to white nationalism, Gavin proclaimed that he was officially disassociating himself from the group. But his voice lives on. You can hear it in thousands of taunting, abusive tweets, ironic racism, and truth-twisting memes posted every day. The same guy who taught hipsters how to dress also taught the alt-right how to troll. So when it's all said and done, it might not be enough to just say that Vice wrote the hipster Bible, as Shane Smith himself has put it. If our religion is a faith in perception itself, if we value engagement and influence even above money, then it's all Vice's world. We just live here. The worst thing will be to be unknown. Everybody should want to be the most extreme version of themselves available. And there will be a reward for that down the line if it's a book deal, a movie deal, whatever have you. That's next time on the final episode of Cool Mules. Another podcast you might like is called Dark Poutine. It smashes this image we have of Canada as this innocent and naive place full of polite people saying sorry. Because actually, there is another side to this country, and it's filled with horrific crimes and dark history. I think you should check out The Mystery of the Mad Trapper of Rat River. That's one of their episodes. Every Monday, there's a new episode hosted by Mike Brown and Scott Hemingway, you can find Dark Poutine wherever you listen to your podcasts. Search Dark Poutine or visit CuriousCast.ca to listen now. Cool Mules is hosted and reported by me, Kasia Mihailovich, and it's written and produced by me and Jesse Brown. Research assistance from Jonathan Goldsby. Kevin Sexton is our managing editor. Music by Nathan Burley. Sound design and mix by Chandra Bullockon. The final episode of Cool Mules will be out next week. Or you can listen to it right now, ad-free, and support our journalism for $5 a month. 
Just click the link in the show notes or visit coolmules.ca slash join. And the whole show will be on your phone or computer in minutes. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.